Welcome to Wild Quincy, a podcast that looks into the little-known and forgotten past of Quincy, Illinois. marriages and a funeral. No, it's not a Hollywood movie. It's the story of Quincy's first female convicted murderer, and it's next on Wild Quincy. Now, here's your host, Chris Ketters and Travis Hoffman. Travis, we are back for yet another episode, this one in the crime category. Before we dig into the details of this week's episode, though, let's talk about last week. And, uh, of course, uh, we call it the Pinkman Hall incident. And the research, great research, a lot of interesting information. Unfortunately, I might have been off on something. Oh, well, it probably wasn't a major detail, was it, Chris? (laughs) No, no, not at all. Nothing super serious, right? No, no. So uh, evidently, uh, we got through the uh, episode, got it uh, published, and our great listeners, we got to give them some kudos, and uh, maybe one or two in particular contacted us and said, I don't know if that name's necessarily right, and Travis, it was something else. What was the name we were looking for? Well, we we wanted to to say Pinkham, but we didn't so much. (laughs) Uh, Pinkman is what came out. Pinkham is the appropriate uh, pronunciation of there. Thanks to Ben and Tina Powell on Facebook for pointing that out to us, <laughs> as they have some family who have the last name Pinkham. And apparently it was nothing less than fingers on the chalkboard every time we butchered that name. So uh, we, we've learned it and we'll never do it again. Never, ever again. You will never hear that happen on Wild Quincy ever again. <laughs> but overall, the Pinkman Hall episode was very good, Chris. Well, thank you. Yeah, we we had a lot of fun talking about that. And unfortunately, not a great, uh, you know, not a, not a fun episode per se, but uh, definitely a great information there. And again, I, I we mentioned this in the Patreon episode, and I kind of want to mention again is that I I wish that I would have taken a little different approach in the actual when I gave you the information because you really think about it when when you talk about Civil War soldiers, you think about them dying in battle. You don't hear often that they die due to something that wasn't battle related. One of your most unlikely foes is a light fixture I I, I found personally. But uh, that was definitely a pretty dramatic situation, for sure. Again, thanks to those guys for uh, reaching out to us and letting us know. And thanks for listening, as always, and catching that thing. I mean, the good news is, Travis, is that even though we got it wrong, we know that people are listening because they they correct us. So we Always let us know if we screw something up because we will gladly correct it. We'll kick ourselves for needing to do a correction, but we definitely appreciate it when people take us to task on something. What do you always say? We are lovers, but... Lovers, not experts. Right. Lovers, not experts of the history. So anytime we get those things, uh, let us know. But Travis, I think it's time for a question of the day. Are you ready for this? Yeah. What do you got for me, Chris? So here is the question. Uh, We are... And again, I think that the problem's going to be is that you kind of know the time frame, but you may not know the exact date. I think it's an easy question, but uh, I'm, I'm making it a little tougher okay. with the possible choices. Okay. So here's your question of the day. What year was the Oakley Lindsay Center built? Was it 1988, 1991, 1993, or 1995? Mm, 
That is going to yes. be a little tricky there. You got some close dates there. So the question again, what year was the Oakley Lindsay Center built? 88, 91, 93, or 95? And bonus points Ooh. for this episode because we're going to see if you have a guesstimate on how much it cost to build the Oakley Lindsay Center. I'll give you a million dollar spread on it. Okay, okay. Well, that's generous. Let's see if I can take advantage of that generosity. Travis, we're getting ready to head in and talk about this week's episode, talking about a woman that uh, has an interesting past, to say the least. That's right. You often hear about the famous people from Quincy, the famous people in Quincy, the titans of industry, the renowned individuals it's not a lot of times you get to take a deep dive into the more infamous characters in quincy's past we plan on doing just that when we talk about the life of edna brown mayhem moonshine and murder it's a crime episode and it's coming up next here on wild quincy what you missed on the latest After Hours episode of Wild Quincy. wonder what zoning regulations are on brothels in Quincy. <laughs> brothels? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm guessing it's probably not great. It's probably not great, uh, but we have a long Qu- no. Quincy tradition as a river town, so the retro's very big right now. Yeah, retro's very big. That's when we're applying for the brothel yeah. in the city of Quincy. We'll say, we're, well, it's got historical significance <laughs> to it. That's right. We're trying to preserve the history of Quincy. Yeah, with a bravo. Our After Hours episodes are available exclusively for Patreon members by going to patreon.com slash wildquincy. For just a couple dollars a month, not only will you double the amount of Wild Quincy episodes at your fingertips, but you'll also be supporting our efforts as we continue to dive into the wild and crazy history of our favorite town. Also, as a Patreon member, you can take part in our live events and Patreon-only outings, as well as having access to our regular episodes two days before they are released to the public. It's easy. Just head to patreon.com slash wildquincy. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash wildquincy and become a wild thing today. Back here on Wild Quincy, time to go into one of these crime episodes. And Travis, uh, you get the honors this week of digging into the details of what, Quincy's first uh, woman killer, potentially? Yeah, I believe if you want to get technical, she was the first person to be arrested and charged with murder. That would be Edna Brown. So it, it, if you're ready, Chris, let's dive on in here. Let's a do lot it. Of, <laughs> there was a lot of research. Edna was, was a feisty one, shall we say. Had four husbands in her lifetime, which created a really interesting hurdle from a research standpoint because everything was loosey-goosey on who, how they referred to her and what last name, and it was you felt like, surely there can't be more, and then you go and search another of her names, and boy, it just, you know, this, this woman killed a lot of trees with all the ink that got printed about her. <laughs> so let's take a deep dive. Let's start at the beginning. Edna was born in Quincy on July 18th of 1894, the eldest of three siblings. She and her family probably didn't have a whole lot of luxury in their life because they were really just scraping by on her father's wages. He was an iron molder at a local factory back when that was kind of, you know, all the foundries were still existing in Quincy and, you know, that heavy industrial footprint was still happening. At one point, Edna was living with her aunt, so it seemed like her childhood life 
the mother and the father were probably at odds. They ended up getting divorced on grounds of abuse and desertion, most likely by her father. So things were very turbulent. At a young age, Edna actually made it into the papers on several occasions. Uh, When she was 13, she was washing windows on the second story of her mother's home. And this was against her mother's advisement, who had cautioned her not to be trying to get out to get these windows. It was dangerous. Well, Edna possibly had a stubborn streak, and she continued to do so, and she leaned out a little too far, and she ended up falling out of the second-story window, and it looked bad at first, but she ended up being fine. She got right back up and, I guess, went in the house and kept washing windows. So the next incident she had, she was trying to coerce and kind of get a stubborn stove to light she was having some trouble with. So she added in some kerosene for encouragement, and that's when the stove flared up and it just shot up like a flash fire almost, singeing her her hands and her face. Fortunately, the burns were very minor, and in a year or so, there were existing scars or long-term effects. Mm-hmm. But but this, this was her first soiree into the printed world of the paper, Chris, and things only got more crazy as, as life went on. <laughs> in November of, of 1911, Edna was 17 years old, and things began looking up as she married a man named Newton Taylor, who was the son of a local publisher as well as a chauffeur to a local doctor. It was a pretty quiet and small ceremony that was actually held in the priest's home. Newton had secured a home for the couple at 608 Elm Street. The future looked bright for the young wedded couple. But fate would seem to have far different plans for Edna. Things started going off the track, and and here's, here's exactly what mystifies me, Chris. 17 wasn't ridiculously young to get married at this no. time frame. So you have a young couple, they get married, he's got a house all set up, they move into the house, you think, okay, what could go wrong here? I don't know, something went wrong, and it's a mystery to me exactly what happened. There really aren't any details available from 1911 to 1913, but something must have taken place that served as a momentous wedge between the two, and it just sent Edna down this kind of 180 road. In 1915... She had left Newton, essentially. They, they were, she was estranged. She was done with the life of a quiet housewife. She seemingly wanted to seek fortunes in much more illicit activities. Her name popped up in the newspaper, citing her as the proprietor of a notorious rural brothel that became the scene for cacophony after a raid by the Quincy police. It was the evening of July 6th, 1915, And the ruckus occurred about a mile and a half north of Fifth and Locust in a house that sat on a hill off to the west of the road. The police arrived. It was about 1130, I think, in the evening. And they wanted to ensure that all the carnal festivities were well underway that evening. You had your jazz music. You had your booze, which it was before Prohibition had started in 1915. So technically, mm, you know, maybe that wasn't the, the situation that was most pressing. And you, so you had the jazz, you had the booze, and all other activities one might expect at a brothel late at night. The police forced entry, and it was there that they discovered a number of men and women of mixed race attending. Attendees were freaked out. They tore out of the house in all directions. It was just pure bedlam. One young woman who was working there fled 
and leapt off a 20-foot embankment into a creek in an attempt oh, to geez. escape. She survived <laughs> She survived the jump but couldn't really swim well, and so the officer chasing her had to jump in and actually pull her out of the, Save the water. Her. <laughs> so, I mean, you got to be a, go, uh, freaking out pretty heavy if you're going to jump off a 20-foot embankment when you know you really can't right. swim good. So, uh, so yeah, there was, it was quite a scene. Edna was originally detained, and she was desperately pleading and bargaining, you know, gosh only knows what, to be released. And when those uh, that groveling didn't really work out, so when she saw an opportunity, she snuck off into the forest in the woods and got away. So she disappeared into the night. Everybody else got hauled into the police station. Um, the the question and why they were held was there a lot of speculation at this time. Um, you know, prostitution and brothels. Their biggest concern was if they had underage women that were working mm. there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the court case isn't overly important. There wasn't actually a court case. It was more a matter of fines that got dished out. Edna, several days later, she was wanted, and they'd been looking for her, and she thought, well, I'll just go down there, pay my fine. So she goes down with her attorney, and apparently there was a processing issue, and instead of just being in and out, she had to end up sitting in a jail cell for, I don't know, a couple days or maybe a month. And then I wow. think she ended up. I don't. I guess they didn't find anything that uh, you know brought up any more charges. So they were fined pretty heavily, but she was out. So let me yeah. let me let me do a little catch up sure. here. So first off, uh, kind of backtrack. She was twenty one years old when this happened. Was this just a party, or was it more of like was this building specifically for like? Broadway? No, it was it was it was the 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 existence of this building was a, it was a well known what they call the local farm and in farm in parentheses, <laughs> but it was, it was a well-known brothel. There had been numerous complaints from neighbors. The police had actually made several attempts to raid this place in the weeks leading up to this, but no one was ever there when they showed up. And Edna wasn't just someone who worked there, but she was labeled as the, it was her place. You know, she owned mm. it. She was the head madam here. So it wasn't just, you know, she kind of got roped into it. She was, she was making some bank off this. And then my next other question, going back just one other step, the first man, the man that she married, right. they got a divorce in 1913, I'm yeah, guessing? Yeah, married in 19... Well, he, yeah, he actually, they actually got a divorce in 1916, but she had left him in 1913. It had okay. become estranged in 1913. And then did you say that he was a doctor? No, he wasn't a doctor. He was, he was, his dad was a publisher in Quincy, and okay. he was a chauffeur to a, okay. a doctor in town. Okay, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Well, and it makes me wonder, like, where she got the money to be able to be the owner of this brothel at. Yeah, yeah. It didn't I, sound like her family was very wealthy. I mean, No, her honesty. family was not wealthy at all. And there's a lot of instances here, especially once Prohibition starts, where she seems to have an endless supply of money that's probably from moonshining, realistically, as we'll, we'll, well get to. Yeah, so. carry on. Indeed. So to your point, Chris, this was all happening in like 1914, 1915. This was probably the last straw between her husband, her first husband, Newton Taylor, and he filed for divorce in 1916. So two years go by and it's pretty quiet. Edna finds another love of her life, who in this guy happens to be a World War I veteran named Edward Hallett. And at some point in his service, he was exposed to mustard gas. And Exposure to this is known to have long-term psychological effects as well as like PTSD. 
And this is probably was a heavy contribute or excuse me, heavily contributed. I can't talk to the tumultuous relationship that Edna and him would have in their relationship. So in 1918, a year after they get married, both Edna, Edward and a handful of others were taken into custody on charges of disturbing the peace while intoxicated. They were participating in a free for all fight in an alley. Edna was struck in the face, leaving her with a bloodstained shirt. Edward, her husband, was carrying a revolver. Thankfully, the police broke up the fight before he or anyone else could get a hold of it and do any more damage to anybody else. So this wasn't a, like a fight club. This this was, this just was a drunken brawl. <laughs> it sounds like in the alleyway, probably a, a, okay. you know, somewhere they're getting some hooch. Still legal it was 1917. Prohibition doesn't kick in until 1920. Yeah, they were they were all fined a monstrous fine of five dollars, Chris, and, and released. The honeymoon between Edna and Edward seemed to be over, judging by Edward taking out a classified ad stating that he would no longer be responsible for the debts contracted by his wife, Edna. And uh, the publication of that classified post was on the same date of the processing of the drunken fight that I I mentioned a a minute ago. So It's too bad we don't see that today anymore. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I'm not owning this woman anymore. Yeah, not it. I mean, that's the the 1918. She's got her own bills to worry about. The 1918 version of not it, not it, not anymore. (laughs) So it's, it's safe to say in 1918, the two had become separated. But they hadn't become divorced yet. We get into the 1920s. We get into the Prohibition era in the country. And on December 22nd, 1920, Edna tries to have a warrant served against her husband, Howlett, claiming that he had taken multiple pieces of furniture from her home, which she believed he had no right to. And the timing of this accusation was a little... It kind of felt like kicking a man when he was down as he had just been in the papers a day before with a public drunkenness arrest. Oh, no. uh, since the two had not yet been divorced, the letter of the law said a husband cannot steal from a wife and vice versa. So mm. the, the suit was completely thrown out. It's so crazy because all these dates start getting real close together sometimes. A month or so later... Edna charged Edward with disturbing the peace. I assume he was maybe drunk and banging on the door or something. And uh, she had him fined $7.75 because of his behavior. So a week later, this is, keep in mind, let me frame this a little bit because it could get a little murky. Edna and her second husband, Ed Howlett, are separated. They're still husband and wife. While this is going on, on April 4th, 1922, Edna is attending a party at her brother's home, where it came to light that a man named Fred Goodwin and Edna had become intimately involved, and uh, Fred had not always been overly faithful to Edna. After a verbal argument, Fred left the house. Edna was fueled by a cocktail of rage and illegal hooch, so she grabbed a pocket knife, chasing Fred plunging the pocket knife into the back under his left shoulder blade. Now, now Fred, I mean, it must have, like, nicked an artery or something because Fred lost a lot of blood and managed to walk another block or so before collapsing, went to the hospital. Thankfully, he survived with no long-term serious injuries, lost a lot of blood, though. Ten days later, Edna was charged with assault with intent to kill. The bond was set at $1,000, which the family came up with without much of a 
much of a fight, it seems like. Which thousand dollars back in nineteen twenty two is pretty significant. It's a lot. Mm-hmm. So I I think that they were probably involved in in the moonshine business as well at this point or some kind of illicit activity still because this is this is after prohibition started. yeah this is two years after prohibition in 1922 yeah. police hinted that they didn't think that Fred Goodwin would actually want to appear as a witness to prosecute Edna which kind of if you read between the lines there you wonder why wouldn't he want to prosecute somebody that tried to kill him he didn't have a great reputation anyways. You'll see a trend here <laughs> when it comes to men. <laughs> so what if he would have presented himself to like a jury, he would have been maybe questioned because they knew who he was. Yeah, or else he just didn't want to go after Edna, and I, I don't know why, but there's not a lot of information. There's really no, no indications that any kind of trial took place for this attempted murder. Hmm. It didn't seem, and if there was, it didn't seem to have a hefty jail sentence. As I don't think even a year would go by without Edna popping up once again in the headlines. So you cut to October 20, or excuse me, October 15th. Edward, her, her husband, her still her second husband at the time, although they've been separated, uh, is arrested and charged with assaulting Edna, beating and kicking her. This attack was reportedly witnessed by several others. He was found guilty, fined $50. He didn't have any means to pay this fine and was instead sent to the workhouse in Quincy down on the riverfront there for 104 and one-half days to kind of pay for his crimes with sweat equity. By this point, Prohibition, like I said, was well underway, and only a month after him going down to the workhouse, Edna's place was raided, and she was charged with manufacturing liquor, so moonshine. Hmm. Edna claims that the still was not hers. That it was her husband's. Yeah, that's it's just like a drug dealer. Right. Uh, I'm, this is a friend's car. It's not my car. Exactly. <laughs> it, she claimed that it was actually he who had owned and operated. You know, this the still. They didn't really. They didn't really believe her. Um, I think they were able to find. They find her a certain amount. She might have served a little time at the workhouse, but nothing significant. Is she still running the brothel at this time? Too? It's not completely clear. Okay. It almost feels like she kind of turned her entrepreneurial spirit to running moonshine. Spirits? Yeah, yeah to the spirits <laughs> of, the, of the... So this was apparently enough to say, okay, I'm done with Edward Howlett. She divorces Edward Howlett. And this would have been in 1923. So... The ink is still maybe not quite dry on the divorce papers. And a year later, in 1924, Edna marries her third husband, a man named Matthew Brown. Things are pretty quiet for about a year until Wednesday, May 27, 1925 rolls around. Edna and Matt lived in a one-floor cottage at 1417 South Front Street. Matt had purchased the former Lafayette Diltz Grocery and Soda Parlor, which was in an adjoining building in that establishment place. Basically, he ran a soda parlor. It was probably a bar at one point. With Prohibition, a lot of times soda parlors would pop up because they were doing a lot of, like, I guess you could say mocktails, where instead of using alcohol, they would use you know different ice cream and mix it with different components. So you had a kind of a bartender mentality there of uh, mm, fixing sure. drinks. Uh, it was also a grocery store. So the day started, May 27th, 1925. Matt was unimpressed by his wife's offerings for breakfast, so instead he went into town, and he returned about 11 a.m., seeming to display signs that he'd been drinking pretty heavily. Things were quiet until about 1.30, when Matt entered the soda parlor and winked at a seemingly random woman in the, the uh -oh. parlor. 
Well, Edna wasn't a fan of this. A little bit of a jealous type, if you hadn't noticed from the first time she tried to kill a man <laughs> with a knife. She saw this nonverbal exchange take place with the wink and was quick to, to confront Matt, asking if he had just winked at that woman. Matt probably had a short fuse as well and said, what if I did? What are you going to do about it? So kind of egged her on a little bit. Edna seemed to leave Matt in the in a back room kitchen of the parlor, returning to the front of the soda parlor establishment. So that this was like one thirty at four p.m. A man. A, it sounds like I'm making this up. A one armed taxi driver named Clarence Laramore, <laughs> uh, farming accident. I looked into it. Um, had entered the parlor, asking if he could use the telephone. There's only one phone in in this this establishment, and it happens to be in Edna's bedroom. So, was he using the phone? Probably, but mm, mm-hmm. there's a history there. So, we'll see. Matthew apparently walks in um, where, when he's still technically using the phone, and he's like, what the beep is this guy doing in here? And then he strikes Edna, knocking her down. He then threatens to kill her. Matt then leaves the room. At this point, Edna you know, picks herself up off the, f- the floor, grabs her fur coat, and grabs a retriever, a uh, retriever, a revolver, <laughs> retrieved a revolver is what I mean to say, in, in her home. And she claimed that when she removed the gun, she was doing it in order to hide it and protect it against Matt, who would potentially possibly grab it and use it against her. So Edna goes back to the soda parlor, and she passes a lady who's running an apartment there. And she turns to the woman and says, he'll never beat me again. Edna and Matt meet again in the, the parlor area. And as Matt emerges from the back room of the parlor, he again confronts Edna upon seeing her with her fur coat, shouting, where the bleep do you think you're going with that fur coat on? Edna replies, to town. Matt responds with, you're not going anywhere. Take that coat off. He then forced Edna into the back kitchen, throwing her against the door, striking her several times. The two begin to tussle about. Edna takes the gun out of the, out of the fur coat. One bullet's fired into the roof, or into the ceiling, essentially. And he says, now I'll kill you, you expletive. And at that point, the gun was fired a second time. The bullet entered through the right shoulder and traveled down, basically right through his heart, killing him dead. Hmm. So Matt's 18-year-old brother, Harold, was in the front of the store. And this quick tussle happened so fast with the gunshots, by the time he turned around, all he saw was a his brother, Matt, just, you know, falling over dead. So at this point, Edna's hysterical, screaming, you know, did I kill him? Did I kill him? She rushes back to where the phone is, attempts to call the police, but is in such a fit of hysteria that she's unable to complete the call. Matt's brother, Harold, is able to kind of take over on the phone, tell the police what happened. And with that, she became the first woman in Adams County to be charged with murder. The court case that followed, it it paints a picture of just tumultuous violence, you know, between the two parties. Nobody was really surprised when they heard somebody died because of, you know, the relationship, essentially. Edna was was pleading self-defense, rightfully so. After all the witnesses provided their testimony, no one really had a clear expectation of how the jury was going to fall after deliberation. A woman had never been convicted. You know, charged and convicted with murder before, so it was kind of an un- unwritten territory here. So no, Edna had a, was pretty confident that she was going to get acquitted. So when the jury comes back after, I think it was twenty four hours of deliberation, they entered the courtroom. 
and Edna was sitting alone. There was not a single member of the family there to support her. No friends, no family. The verdict from the jury was guilty. However, it was of a lesser charge, not murder. It was actually, she was found guilty of manslaughter. And, you know, like I said, until that point, Edna was pretty sure she was going to get off the hook here. It was a crushing blow to her. She was visibly shaken, as you can imagine she would be. And she was sentenced, and this is what seems kind of strange to me, Chris. It's Her sentence in the papers were from one year to life, and that was all dependent on her behavior as a prisoner. That's a wide spread. I know, right? <laughs> I, I kept digging on that one and couldn't find any more clarity. And the way it worked is after two years, you essentially enter the board of uh, pardons at this time, where based off your performance, not performance, but your behavior as a prisoner, that could indicate you know how much longer you'd have to serve. I guess she was a model inmate because less than four years later, she's out and marries her fourth and final husband, Guy Munch, in 1928. And so prohibition is still raging on, but the two end up living in Peoria, and there's there's nothing else. Nothing else happens. There's no news. I checked the Peoria papers. There's nothing on Edna. They seem to settle down. Uh, were married, oh, I don't know, more than 10 years, and it appears Edna had some kind of year-long illness, and uh, and she ended up dying in Peoria on March 13, 1941. So... It only seems fitting that Edna's story started here in Quincy, and so it's fitting that her story concludes here as she was laid to rest right here in Woodland Cemetery. In short, that was the wild and crazy life of Edna Brown. Chris, what's your thoughts? Uh, quite a few. I, I have like three little notepads full of notes here. Um, I guess I'll start with the the most recent one. Well, and kind of with the whole combination of everything. I wonder what her, f- because, okay, so get recap this for me real quick. Grew up with her parents, right? With her mom. Well, yeah, it's not completely solidly clear what the dynamic there was. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point, it was the f- full family unit. I think her father was kind of out of the picture, in and out of the picture, okay. but they were separated when she was probably, I would say, maybe 10, 11 but yeah, she she lived with her aunt for a little bit, and then with her mom, or maybe both, all lived together, her aunt and her mom. And the reason I bring that up is because the biggest question mark that I have is where did she get her money at? Because I, you had her you know, becoming uh, married at 17, then all of a sudden she's sounds like she's, she's owner of Bordello at 21. Yeah. Uh, and then all of a sudden, a couple of years down the road, now she's an owner of, of a soda parlor. It's like, where did this money really come from? And, and, but maybe you kind of hinted a little bit, but again, the moonshine thing wasn't until after Prohibition right. started. It could have been possible that maybe there was some other moonshine activity going on prior to, to Prohibition? Yeah, I, I think there definitely was. I, I, I don't know a lot about what the law looked like before Prohibition got into full effect. I don't know if the the uh, the leash was getting tightened. The belt was getting tightened on any kind of like homemade liquor situations, and it might have been illegal to like manufacture for sale. But it sounds like even at that the brothel where they were raided by the police, I believe her brother was actively 
making like scotch on the back porch or something at the time. Hmm. So, I mean, there there were several levels of of brothels, Chris. From what I understand, some were were for the politicians, the higher class, and this was not one of those places. This was more hmm. a rough and tumble crowd. I, it's a great question. I you know, at those those early days. I don't yeah. know where that money was coming from because it wasn't that she, you know, within two years or three years, it wasn't like it showed a trajectory of her being employed as one of the working girls at the brothel, but it was her place. So, I mean, she, she worked through the ranks pretty fast. Right. It's, so that, that was one of the things I thought of. And then on that same side, and I think it kind of leans into even just the conversation we just had, is that when you're doing, and again, we don't know the mentality of 1900s, right. you know, people in general but sounds like she was already hanging with the wrong crowds and then not only that but then you start hanging with the wrong crowds and then all of a sudden you become you know attractive to somebody that's in that wrong crowd and end up marrying that person i mean you you can tell with you know i believe it was her second husband you know they there was so much going on there and fighting and yeah and then also with Matthew, the one that she ended up uh, ended up uh, shooting, it, it, the same thing sounded like that. That it was not a healthy relationship. Again, we don't know 19, 1920s mentality yeah. necessarily of of a relationship and marriage compared to what it is today. But it didn't sound like it was that good. No, no. It, it, I I really keep going back to what happened in those three years from nineteen eleven to nineteen thirteen after she got married. What happened where, you know, 1911, this young couple gets married. I mean, the guy she married seems to be pretty straight and narrow. There isn't any weird asterisks or criminal records on this guy. But in two years, she's off making money at the brothel. Completely speculative here. Yeah, I have some thoughts, but go ahead. But you do wonder if the first person that she got with, it was a good relationship. But the problem was Edna was already going down her own path. And he saw that, and so the, he tried getting away from that. Because if you look again in her timeline, by the time you know you talk about the 1911, 1913 question mark time frame, then by 1915, that's when she's already starting to get into the Bordello stuff. Yeah. So it makes you think that he may have saw the path that she was going down, and he was like, no, this isn't going to work. Yeah, and what, what I'm about to say is completely 110% speculative. I have no evidence to back this up. But, Chris, I almost wonder if if there's not something else at play here. Potentially, what if, and here's a couple scenarios. Again, this is all speculation on my part. Uh, this is completely wild speculation. What if this Newton kid was, what if Edna was already working? What if he got her pregnant? Oh. What if. Did she ever have any kids? No. Okay. And so. Again, here's here's a speculative scenario. What if the two get? What if this guy wants to do the right thing? She's young. She's scared. What if they get married? What if they lose the baby? What if sure. what if it's a miscarriage or something? I mean, that at a young age is hard to process. And and I don't know. I and it, you know, obviously, most tales of of women who enter the world of you know prostitution, it's a horrible story. Um, mm. and and so it's. You know, it's 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 a mixed bag of you know, when you're when you're successful in that, it, it, have you been forced into it? 
you know, are, 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 are you, are you a barren? Can you not have kids? Is that, is that, does that seem like a better career choice if you can't have kids? I don't know. I mean, that's, it's very complicated. The other thing is, and then maybe this is something we need to, to dive into for the Patreon episode and explore this a little bit more is the wider, um, wider area of, you know, back in the, this time frame was it more likely that if you were a call girl or whatever you want to call them back in the day um, that you could rise up to being an owner of a brothel or or was it more so on the other hand to where you know for some reason I'm thinking like on movies and stuff they always have the example that uh, the brothel owner has never done anything like that you know they're in it for the business and they're not part of the the prostitution part of it you know but yeah. they're they're there to make the money so in and she sounds like and you said the word entrepreneur it sounds like she's an entrepreneur so it makes me question uh, you know again then also comes to the question is is you know did she get that money because she was a, a prostitute or did she get that money because of somewhere else which gave her the capabilities of doing these other things so uh, the only thing i will pull out here uh actually I got two things and then uh, I, I think I'm we're gonna have a lot more on Patreon to talk yeah. about. But I'm curious if four. Well, technically, I guess it'd be three divorces because because uh, the third right. husband died. Or, was it three? Was it four divorces or was it just technically two divorces? It was two divorces technically. Two divorces. Yeah. So I, I I still even at that point in time. Uh, I'm questioning how much in the 1900s and the 1920s, how high of a divorce rate that was. I would assume divorce rate is really low in the 1900s, early 1900s. You know, it's hard to say because practically everyone whose name I mentioned or who people I referenced in this story could probably, we could probably do a full episode on just that <laughs> because everybody had a record here. Yeah, uh, Edna's own mother was charged with running a still herself and was acquitted as is not because it didn't have all the functioning parts to the still at the time of when it was written. <laughs> so there's, there's all these throw that one out the window stories. and they never see it. Well, it almost sounds like running a still was a family tradition realistically. Mm. So yeah. it wouldn't surprise me if there was a family affair of them, you know, making moonshine or I think white mule was one name they used for it in the papers. Back at the time. But yeah, that the whole money thing. I think once Prohibition hit, I think her and, and some family members were very heavily involved in, you know, bootlegging. The the one armed taxi driver who I alluded to, uh Laramore, I believe his last name was, he was known to be a hooch runner. Because his he was a taxi oh. driver. His his line went from Quincy to I wanna say out in Liberty maybe or the Payson area over there but he was he had a lot of brush and his brother was actually mysteriously killed too which could be another story hmm. but no it's there was a lot of mention of divorces throughout all these articles and it seemed pretty pretty passe like it wasn't a huge deal so i think you're looking at the 20s i think divorce has kind of become part of the mainstream and it may not have been as shunned but then again i mean you know I'm better than no one but it seemed like the newspaper and a lot of people looked looked down at and a lot of the, this, this class. Yeah, you had a certain yeah. class. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it, in the reporting. And you could kind of make the argument to some extent, obviously, for being any sort of news source, you want to be unbiased. But obviously, from what her background was and with the brothels and things like that, I mean, I, you could kind of somewhat feel that she probably was in a different 
you don't want to say in the like necessarily like a, like a lower class or like a you know like scum of the earth kind of thing but you could tell the jobs and the careers and the things that she was doing was definitely not something that uh, an outstanding citizen would be doing yeah i mean they may be looking for the services provided but they probably wouldn't yeah. be cut providing <laughs> yeah, those, those services. outstanding people might be. yeah uh you know it, it's it's easy to look at the black and white of this in the newsprint of the of days gone by, but realistically, I mean, this was a, I mean, what a horrible time! And the men and women in this situation, she and her husbands, they were dealing with a lot of personal demons. She was suffered from a lot of physical abuse from her spouses. Yeah, she had to be tough. I mean. She did seem like an entrepreneur, Chris. I mean, she was she was looking for her piece of the pie, and this was the best route for her at this given time. Matt Brown, who ran the soda parlor, he had been accused of selling moonshine illegally as well. He was he was uh, not convicted, but I mean, nobody's hands are completely clean here. And when you have all those levels of gray, you know, it's it's hard to know how to. How do how do you position Edna? I mean, is she someone who who suffered? Is she someone who who caused strife or just? I mean, she was she had a, a crappy life. A lot of a lot of the stuff mm-hmm. leading to her to the decision she made was very tough. And yeah. and you you uh, you grind down on on somebody that hard for that long, and uh, just to survive, life becomes kind of a questionable. You know, means I think. Well, and I think that's something we're going to have to have more of a discussion on our next week's Patreon episode. <laughs> There's a lot more to talk about her, like maybe her brother who had some issues himself, shall we say? So, lots to uh, look at there, and so we'll be covering that coming up uh, next week. But uh, that is a look at Quincy's first woman murderer, and that is Edna Brown. And we'll be back with more after this on Wild Quincy. <laughs> The savings are incredible for Buford Ward's July closeout sale. Rates are as low as 0%, rebates as high as $4,500. Save over $5,500 on a new Impala. Save over $5,000 on a new Silverado regular cab. And through July 31st, get $100 worth of gasoline free with any new or used vehicle purchased. See the Tri-State Area's leading sales team for all the details. Huge savings plus gasoline for your summer travels. Chevy will be there. Buford Ward Chevrolet, 24th and Locust, Quincy. Well, another awesome throwback ad as we are looking at the old... GM Superstore of Buford Ward. Travis, you remember Buford Ward? Yeah, boy, that was a, a staple. I remember always watching the news. You'd see a, a Buford Ward ad pop up and takes you back. Takes you Legendary back. Jeff Dorsey uh, doing that. We'll put that to video up on our Facebook page. And by the way, if you haven't checked it out yet, uh, we just recently posted last week's throwback ad with Corey McCloskey and uh, the prom graduation celebration thing uh, on our uh, Facebook page. So if you haven't seen that, check that out as well. But Travis, Buford Ward uh, was around for a long time. Of course, you remember 24th and Locust where all the car lots were at back in the day. Now they're kind of spread out throughout the town. Right. But uh, 
uh, Buford Ward around till August of 2003 when the Schottenkirk Automotive Group purchased them uh, back in uh, uh, December, or excuse me, August of 2003. And then, of course, in December, they actually also had a budget lot that was open in the same area. So uh, Schottenkirk taken over because not only that, in 1999, Schottenkirk acquired the Chrysler Toyota franchise in Quincy. So uh, they kind of snuck in there right around that uh, 2000 mark. But I remember Buford Ward, Travis. You'll remember this, too, when I say it. We used to go to Quincy Raceways a lot uh, back right, in yeah. the day when we were younger. And uh, uh, my brother's married to family members that are um, race car people. and Pe- People that race, not people like Transformers that turn into race cars. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Although that uh, would be the- an exciting family reunion. <laughs> so it, Mark Bertorf, who stu- still races late models uh, in the world today, and then Slammin' Sammy Bertorf, uh, who used to race a, a bomber and then an A-modified. Uh, they both had Buford Ward on the side of their emblem. I think Sam actually worked at Buford Ward for a while. Oh, wow. So, uh, yeah, so cool little place. And, again, check it out. Uh, we'll have Jeff Dorsey that is there uh, on that uh, video as well. So pretty cool stuff. I think it's time... For somebody to introduce something. Oh, I think you're right, Chris. And now it's time for words of wisdom from Adams County. Thanks, Bo. Boy, that doesn't get old. <laughs> it doesn't every week. It's like a fine <laughs> wine or a cheese. It just gets better every time. It hits your ears. So this is, of course, a look at none other than back at the folklore of what is Adams County. We look to the forefathers and we get wisdom and guidance from them. And this week uh, we asked, uh, we were going to get a a Facebook post put out there. We haven't got it yet. Hopefully by the time you hear this, that'll be on there. Go on there. uh, Give us a number. We will uh, use your name and your number coming up in a future episode. But we had to uh, reach out and we reached out to a uh, fan favorite, one of our favorites, a special guest that we've had come in many times in the past and uh, guest host as well. And that would be Mr. Chad Douglas. So he's going to provide us with our first number. What what did he go with? Let's see what we got. He went with an interesting one. He went with the number 1313. Wow. Okay. Good good choice. Good choice. So the, we're going to take a look at what category that it's in. Ironically, it is the very last number in the uh, chapter for aquatic life. Okay, aquatic life. All right, so 1313. Are you ready, Travis? Okay, what we got? Keep a piece of oyster shell in your pocketbook for luck and money. Words of wisdom from Adams County. Huh. Oyster shell, huh? Oyster shells. Okay. Yep. So okay. now you know. Uh, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, so again, uh, make sure to check that out. Again, that's, uh, we love doing that segment. That is a lot of fun. But Travis, I think it's time for the question of the day. Okay, I've been thinking about this, and I'm, I'm not confident I'm going to get it, but let's hear it again for those that were not paying attention the first time. All right, here's your question. What year was the Oakley Lindsay Center built? Was it 1988, 1991, 1993, or 1995? Travis, you want to take a guess? I'm on the fence between 93 and 95. I know the flood of 93, a lot of the big sandbagging was happening at the parking lot with Gems Play, the stadium. Mm Mm-hmm. But I don't know if there was also an operation down at this Oakley Lindsay Center. 
I don't know if there was. So I'm going to say 1995, Chris. Final answer? Yeah. You would be correct. Oh, how about that? I wasn't confident. 1995 was the year that the Oakley Lindsay Center was finished. And then, of course, I give you the extra yeah. credits. Uh, how much did it cost? Oh, so you want to take a guesstimate? I'll give you a million dollar, a million dollar uh, leeway. Ugh. I haven't the foggiest idea. I'm going to throw out a number that's probably not even in the close. See if I can read it and send it to you. Okay. Okay, go ahead. I send it to you. Uh, yeah, I got nothing. I, I, I'm gonna uh, ten million. Seems high. You'd you would be two million dollars off. Oh man, eight, I was close. Okay, eight million dollars to build the Oakley Lindsay Center. Should have went low. Should have went low. Should have went low. Yeah. Uh, the, <laughs> eight million. Okay. Well, we bring this up uh, not because of uh, uh, this great uh, location, but because of some of the stuff that's happened at this great location. We're gonna be talking about concerts. In the Quincy area, we're going to be talking about those rock concerts, country concerts. We're going to be talking about everything from Brad Paisley to Cheap Trick to Def Leppard. We're going to do it with somebody that we've been really excited to bring in. We're going to bring in the legendary broadcaster, Doc Holliday, as he's going to be joining us on our next episode of Wild Quincy to talk concerts in Quincy. And it should be a fun That's time, That's going Travis. to be a good time, man. Get get the, the hairspray ready. There's a good chunk of 80s rock and roll hair metal going to be reminisced about. There's a new green room in, in, the, the, in the, the Oakley Lindsay Civic Center. That they, they dedicated for a concert, like artists, who, like backstage area. Oh, really? Yeah, we were, I was just down there with a day job, and they've converted a room we use uh, into a little green room area. And it's yeah. it's interesting because it's over top the theater, and there's a door, a small like closet-looking door that you open up, and it's access to a catwalk in the, the, the community theater. To the theater. And if you're not paying attention, I can see a rock star getting a little, a little sloshed and... Uh, think that's a door somewhere and things can go bad i don't know <laughs> i was a little nervous all right olc make sure to lock that door before the next concert yeah uh, <laughs> yeah it was a little like ooh, 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 ee. yeah it could be a little scary so we're going to be talking with doc as mentioned coming up in the next episode but before we wrap things up travis are we missing anything We'd love to hear from you. 612-666-9453 is our phone line. If you want to give us a return liner, we would definitely appreciate that. We uh, we appreciate you listening. We've uh, got a lot of more fun stuff happening on Season 2 here. Lots of stuff coming up. We're busy. We're getting back in the flow of things, Chris. And a lot more episodes to come. So for Travis Hoffman, I'm Chris Ketters, and you've been listening to Wild Quincy. We'll catch you guys next time. Take care, everybody. Wild Quincy is released every other Tuesday and is produced by Chris Ketters and Travis Hoffman. Sound designed by Downdraft Sound and Editing and music by Travis Hoffman Music. I'm Bo Beecraft, and thanks for listening to Wild Quincy. <laughs>